trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I am so happy to uh, to welcome you to our little audience of wrong thinkers. Yes, we're growing by the day. I, I'll tell you this right up front. The numbers don't concern me as much as they once did. It's not like I look at this and say, okay, we only had this money today. This means that we're not reaching people. I figure that anybody who stumbles across this broadcast or this podcast is probably looking for something. And I presume they're looking for a take on what's going on today that is, uh, how can I say this? Um, well, let's just say it's, it's lighter on the political talk and more focused on the principles at hand. And that's exactly what I strive to do. Now, I don't always succeed. And there are times where I get emotionally engaged in a particular topic. And, uh, and sometimes I can be a little snarky. I know, hard to believe, but, but there it is. But always my goal at the end of the day, whatever I'm sharing with you, what, whatever, whatever slant I happen to have on it, my goal is to leave you with something to think about. Not necessarily agree with, but at least to ponder, is this another way of looking at things that uh, if it doesn't change your mind, at least enlarges your point of view to understand, here's how other people may see it. Now, you notice there's, there's no need to declare a victor at the end of a discussion. There's no need to, to see this as a zero-sum game in which, you know, I have to beat you or rhetorically trick you into agreeing with me. All I'm trying to do is encourage people to, to really take seriously that uh, duty to think for themselves. The conclusions you come to, I trust that you're, if, you're, if you're really looking for, you know, a more accurate take on what's going on or uh, a more principle-based take, then I trust that uh, you are well on your way to becoming one of those people who owns their worldview. I'm still a work in progress. I think we all are. But uh, I try to share with you things that would be very, very handy. In fact, in today's, uh, in this hour of the, the program, I'm going to share with you another essay from Paul Rosenberg on fallacies. And, and understanding logical fallacies or uh, different argumentation tools that people may use to either shut you down or mislead you or otherwise, you know, get you to agree to something that you don't really agree with, you know, rhetorical sleight of hand. Um, it's there's there are a lot of different issues where you can see this pop up. And Paul Rosenberg's latest essay is on fallacies of elimination. And when he gives the examples, here's how the trick works. You're going to recognize these are extremely useful tools for our time. It's not about beating, you know, whoever you're talking with into submission. It's about being able to recognize when these things have been weaponized against you and not responding in kind or otherwise uh, muting yourself out of a sense of, oh, well, I don't want to be shamed or I don't want to be, you know, made guilty in the eyes of the people who may be looking on. Not that that stuff ever happens, right? Right? Yeah, anybody who's been on social media lately is like, that's all it is. It's just, it's purse swinging. Somebody's going to lose an eye. So that's upcoming. We're going to talk also about how the administrative state has become a part of American life. So much so that uh, not only are there an awful lot, like millions of Americans whose lives depend on being part of that administrative state. And by the way, it's not just at the federal level. That's right on down to your local government. 
There's a lot of administration that transfers a lot of tax money from the taxpayers to government and a lot of power, too. The problem comes when that power is being exercised in ways that are not directly accountable to the voters, to the taxpayers. Ethan Yang, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a marvelous piece on this, and I'll share that with you just a little bit later on. I want to start with something a little bit optimistic, because like a lot of folks, I look around and I see things that could very easily make me pessimistic. Maybe you catch on to this, too. I mean, things are looking pretty tough. If you are a person who values individual conscience, if you're a person who loves personal liberty, if you are a supporter of property rights, if you're a believer in freedom of, uh, of religion, freedom of conscience, these are not good times. <laughs> this is a time where we're watching things fall apart like a soup sandwich. It's, it's tough to see. But... I want to start with a with an essay from Joaquin Book. And this is uh, this is a very hopeful essay about how we could still have a century of liberty. In other words, things are looking dark right now. It looks like the people who are really um in favor of collectivism and forced submission to this ideology or that ideology, right now they control a great number of the levers of power in our society. And, it, you know, to pretend otherwise doesn't uh, doesn't mean, you know, that, that uh, it's not so. But we are far from finished. And this is a place where we actually have more control. Some of the recommendations that uh, that Joaquin Book makes show that it's not necessarily in politics where our control and our influence is fairly limited, but in other areas of our lives. Here's here's how he starts it. He says in the aftermath in the aftermath, rather, of a pretty statist revolution and a major step back for individual freedom read the pandemic it's time for some optimism now he says many philosophers and historians have talked about the zeitgeist of an era the idea that there's something in the air of a time something propelling history forward in the realm of ideas previously unthinkable ideas suddenly become inevitable basic human decency and a matter of co- and a matter of course the collapse of the divine right of kings Individual rights, abolished slavery, women's suffrage, divorce, gay rights, seen with the historian scope of centuries instead of the day-to-day grudging changes, most such ideas were radical, yet were embraced in an unexpectedly fast manner. Now, he says in technology, countless instances of simultaneous innovations show us that at some point, the world's economic and social structure was just ripe for a certain idea. Had Edison not invented the light bulb? Someone else would have, roughly at the same time, and history as we knew it would have transpired pretty much the same. Now, an idea whose time has come is too powerful to be prevented by any countercultural move or any politician wielding the violent power of the state. He says, if I may grossly simplify the last two centuries of the Western world, the 19th century was one of emerging global connections and expanding mass political franchises. The 20th century, one of mass production and mass statism with its accompanying mass killings, against which the 21st century looks like it could be a century of genuine liberty. Now, Joaquin Book says plenty of people have said similar things about what they thought were the correct move for their times, and plenty of people have been wrong. In fact, he says, most likely I am too, but hear me out. See, I I admired that kind of humility. This is his most educated guess on it. But he's willing to admit maybe maybe he's not right about it. I want to know more. So here we go. 
He says a foundational value at the core of the free society is not only free speech, freedom of religion and freedom of movement. It is also property rights, which is an extension of the broader principle of leaving people alone. You do you and I do me. My consumption choices or the choices I do with regards to the people with whom I surround myself are not yours to meddle with. The basic idea is to each his own. Now, in most pop culture, the depiction of a liberty-loving person is either as a tax-hating and money-obsessed sociopath or a surveillance nutjob, delusionally wielding guns to protect against an ever-encroaching government. For good measure, measure, we add pot, gold buried in the backyard, and stacked cans of tuna for the imminent collapse. But he says, in reality, most people instinctively share basic morals. Matt Kibbe's manifesto called Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff. It's called that for a reason. Most people are on board with these unobjectionable ideas and embody these those morals in their everyday actions. Now, what he's saying here is your life and your choices are not mine to interfere with. Our diverging values are not cause for conflict, but for market based cooperation or civic based separation. We can both flourish if we specialize in what we're relatively good at and leave each other free to innovate and improve. In the long run, as the fantastic Deirdre McCluskey keeps pointing out, you'll make me rich. Now, among many other things, the left, intellectually following John Stuart Mill, wants others to stop judging, preventing, punishing, and banning actions, traits, and behaviors that don't harm others. They don't want government standing in the way of basic human liberties to move, to associate, to marry. The right, ultimately following Burke, but with a lot of permutations, don't want governments to mandate, to socially engineer, to interfere with the slow-moving process of old civic institutions. So Joaquin Book is saying genuine liberty isn't a mix of the dysfunctionally intolerant left and maniacally warmongering right, but at its core, it still incorporates values cherished by both groups. And John Tamney has the analysis right in his They're Both Wrong, a policy guide for America's frustrated independent thinkers. A more peaceful and just world allows both groups to live out their own ideological dreams. I got to pause here because we are up against the break. So we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Again, this is an article from Joaquin Book, published on the American Institute for Economic Research. If you haven't signed up for their daily emails, you really should do it. There is so much good information that comes out of this organization. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, I thank you for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Every day, at least every day that I, that I do this program, I publish show notes. And in those show notes, I have links to the articles and the different commentaries and different guests that I have on. And so I would encourage you, please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That is where you will find this article linked from uh, Joaquin Book, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. He's talking about how we can still have a century of liberty, even though for people who are liberty minded, I'm seeing a lot of long faces these days. In fact, there are times I'm finding myself feeling the you know, little pangs of despair, like, wow, how quickly <laughs> this is all coming unraveled. But here's something that uh, Joaquin Book asks. He says, 
So how is our current policy disaster an indication of a world with more liberty? Well, he says, in the beginning of the pandemic, some easy jabs were directed at the very idea of liberty. I don't know if you remember the article. There are no libertarians in an epidemic. To which the natural response was perhaps not, but no statists coming out of one. His point here is that nothing in the last 12 months has indicated to us that big government is more efficient, more just, or better equipped to handle problems big or small. He says, if anything, we've learned that when the push, when push comes to shove, you're on your own. Which means you're reliant on those with whom you trade, family and close friends with whom you surround yourself, and the cooperative civic relations of those with whom you interact. It's as plain as day that the centrally planned mandates and the withdrawal of individual liberty that in the last year were often portrayed as responsible and necessary are having a bottom-up backlash. People, even the very ones issuing the mandates, ignore the rules, left and right, because those rules don't work with how people live their lives. Those who aren't political or intellectual elites or make decent amounts of money overwhelmingly report that the events of 2020 have made their lives worse. The anarchist growing in everyone's minds is bound to come out. The infantilization of grown-up human beings will create a liberty-fueled backlash. Leave us be. I can't argue with him on this. I think a lot of people have learned that lesson firsthand. Regardless of where they may think they fall on the political spectrum, I have heard a lot of people say those words. I just want to be left alone. I just want to be able to make these decisions myself. Welcome, brother. Welcome, sister. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is the first step of the, the rest of the journey right here. Now, Joaquin Book says, My idea of a century of liberty rests much more on the idea that people will want to be free. In other words, they want to be left alone. More on that on megatrends that government and statist ideologies are in no position to counter. The Internet and its mass, inf mass access to information, cryptography and its mass ability to hide from view, and yes, the Bitcoin and the mass ability to hold instantly teleportable value somewhat outside the purview of Uncle Sam or banks censoring the payments that they or their regulations don't like. By the way, just as an aside, this is something we're beginning to see more and more. Banks saying we will no longer do business or we will no longer accept money on the part of this organization or this individual. It's a matter of time before banks stop playing nice with, for instance, gun or ammunition manufacturers or anybody who's associated with something so politically incorrect. It's a form of electronic fascism. And when a currency is all digital, it just becomes that much easier because every transaction you have is trackable. It's reportable. It's searchable. And good luck if you have, you know, if you've offended the powers that be, you know, how much luck are you going to have landing a job when all of your digital information is suddenly, nope, this isn't recognized. You're not a part of the system. Good luck, you know, opening a checking account. Good luck cashing a paycheck should you get one. Good luck buying groceries or gassing up your car. Don't think it'll happen. History suggests otherwise. Now, Joaquin Book says, on top of this, the pandemic has taught us to do our value-creating activities from afar. And we're not geogra geographically bound to the places where we work. It's true. It's a foregone conclusion that remote work and freelancing will get its long-simmering upheaval, giving workers the tools to take responsibility for their own livelihoods, businesses to assemble and recruit from more than their immediate inner-city surroundings, 
and individuals to jurisdictionary arbitrage into areas that treat them better. Competition in the service of individual freedom. Enter the Californian exodus. He says, the first time I heard about people flocking to Austin, Texas, an artistic blue city in a sea of guns and Bibles, was in 2016 from a liberty-seeking couple relocating there. The wave hasn't stopped since hundreds of thousands of people every year have voted with their feet, escaped the onerous and unfree insanity of California for the less mad freedom of Texas. It was a year and a half ago that The Economist featured the battle between two visions of America on their Texafornia Dreaming cover. Now everyone with even a shred of liberty to their name seems keen on Austin, Joe Rogan and Elon Musk being only the most vocal. The values of young people, the iGen, also seems broadly indicative of, a, of a, our future. They support pot, same-sex marriage, and abortion rights. They dislike death penalties and national health care. How can iGen hold these seemingly contradictory beliefs, asked Jean Twenge, psychology professor at San Diego State already in, two, in 2017. Well, she continues, in short, because they're libertarians, or at least more libertarian than their elders. Igen was raised in a highly individualistic culture, favoring the self over the group. Phrases such as do what's right for you and believe in yourself and anything is possible echoed through their childhood. Libertarianism is as close to cultural individualism as can be found in the political arena, favoring individual rights and fighting against government regulation. All successful ventures, says Joaquin Book, including monetary commodities that benefit early adopters over late arrivals. And for some of the grandest ventures of the last years, libertarians have long been on board. In this sense, Bitcoin is a wealth transfer from statist boomers to individualist, anarchist, and liberty-friendly youngsters. He says, if I could wage a guess, I'd say that the political leaning of Teslanaires are disproportionately pro-liberty. As, of course, are the technologically savvy outcasts and others early to the Bitcoin party. Like how I first heard about the wonders of Austin from libertarians. It was libertarians who told me, showed me, and taught me about Bitcoin over the last half decade. It's a neat coincidence, he says, or is it? That the Bitcoin financial services company Unchained Capital is located in Austin. Now, what King Book says, look, maybe I'm just a victim of an elaborate after-the-fact selection issue. Maybe I just remember the precursors to what actually happened and conveniently forgot the signs that indicated an outcome that didn't come to pass. Most people who call flourishing futures for the ideas whose times have come are wrong. Still, he says, from where I'm standing, the corona madness and infantilizing political landscape aside, it doesn't look, or it does look rather, like the 21st century might be the century of true freedom. I appreciate his optimism. And I, I, I noticed uh, when he posted this on Twitter, um, you know, some people, some people were like, I wish I shared your optimism. And we have reasons to be skeptical, but I also think we have reasons to be optimistic. And if, if for no other reason than people who have held very deep beliefs in, well, this is the system and I have faith that politics is going to fix what's going on. There are a lot of folks who've woken up to the fact that, you know, notwithstanding how well CPAC went over the weekend, a political solution is not likely to deliver us from the problems we're facing right now. In fact, if anything, they only seem to exacerbate them. Doesn't matter who's in charge. Doesn't matter who holds the White House or Congress. The direction of government is always greater and larger, more expensive, needing to transfer more from the productive sectors of society to the unproductive, meaning those who create no actual wealth. But because of that, 
I can't help but believe in my heart that there are people who have, you know, they've had their paradigm shaken, all right? They're they're looking at things in, with slightly new eyes, maybe the unpleasant awakening of, hey, that didn't go the way that we thought it would, or I've learned something I really wish I had understood before. Bottom line is, though, they're searching for something of substance. I think that we, those of us, uh, you know, on the side of liberty, private property, freedom of conscience, sound money, all of these kind of things that are consistent with freedom, I think we have something of value to offer them. And for some people, maybe they're actually in the mood to listen. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I do want to give a quick shout out here to uh, my sponsors. They include Monticello College, also Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. And I just got word today that Rio del Sion uh, Home Lots, right there uh, by the beautiful Virgin River and just outside the mouth of Zion National Park, uh, they are selling out quick. I mean, like, like really, really fast. So I, I would love to take credit and say, yes, it was, it was us bringing the message to you. But um, let's just say people have heard and... Uh, there are a few lots left. There is a link that you'll find at the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. And uh, I would encourage you to take a look. If, you, if you're relocating, if you're part of that California migration, people leaving to go to, uh, to more free states, a lot of folks are coming here. This might be something worth your time. So in, in interest of trying to help build our understanding of the world, one of the most powerful tools you can have is some basic logic on your side. It doesn't mean you're going to be right every time, but by employing rules of basic logic, you will make more sound arguments. You'll recognize unsound arguments. And what that amounts to is you won't be wrong as often either. Does that make sense? You're not going to be right all the time, but you won't be wrong as much either. Paul Rosenberg's essays on fallacies have become a very appreciated tool in uh, in my lexicon of better understanding uh, not only some of the logical fallacies out there, but how people will often use these against you to try to shut down your viewpoint. So please understand, if, if you know anything about the way Paul Rosenberg writes and the way he approaches life, this is not, you know, a, a, this is not an online course on black belt of how to, you know, verbally go beat somebody up. It's not a way to, to commit verbal judo against someone. So much as it's about being a better, more effective messenger and being able to resist some of the weaponized tools, rhetorical tools that others will throw at you. His latest essay is on fallacies of elimination. And when I read this one, I went, oh, man, this is stuff that we can use right now today. And when you hear some of the examples about how this tool is used, I think you'll, you'll understand why I'm saying this. So fallacy number 16, fallacies of elimination. Paul Rosenberg says properly, what we'll be covering today are fallacies of irrelevance. Now, there are several types of these with the genetic fallacy and ignoring refutation being the best known. Nonetheless, he says, I tend to see them all as fallacies of elimination. So that's what I'm giving this coverage the name of this fallacy. He says, like more or less all of them is very old. This was first noted by Aristotle at 330 B.C. or so. 
In our time, we see it mainly as political word tricks. So let's start with the genetic fallacy, which eliminates an idea based upon its origin or at least its claimed origin. A common example would be something like this. You shouldn't wear a wedding ring because in the old days they were a token of ownership. That wedding ring means you're a slave to your husband. So Paul says the argument here is that since the wedding ring had an ugly beginning, an ugly genesis, you're endorsing it by you're endorsing that beginning idea by wearing it. Now, the argument is silly, of course, even if the story being attached to it is true. And often such stories are not true. The lady wears the ring for her own reasons. Maybe it reminds her of her husband, reminds her that she is loved or reminds her of their wedding. She's probably never heard the token of ownership story. So the genesis of a thing probably has nothing to do with how someone uses the thing today. And so the history is more than likely irrelevant. The fallacy then is used to enforce conduct. It's similar to guilt by association and other tricks for eliminating conduct, people, or ideas. We also see this elimination trick in the personalizing of arguments. Consider this kind of conversation. Surely you must support racial equality. I support all people being treated equally and well. Well, that's why we have racial preference laws. No, punishing any law or punish any law punishing any race is a bad, dangerous thing. You hate them, don't you? What? You hate blacks. You hate people of color. You're a racist. Now, in this conversation, the, the second person was talking about laws and their benefit or harm, as well as stating that all people should be treated equally and well. But the first speaker, however, personalized the issue precisely so he could get rid of the second speaker and his argument. He moved the point of the conversation abruptly and unilaterally from the rightness of the laws to you're a bad person. And these are very typical sorts of elimination tricks. In this case, you chop down the people stating X, Y or Z rather than considering X, Y or Z. Now, Paul Rosenberg says we can bear in mind that nasty people like racists do sometimes hide behind false fronts like legal arguments. But to simply presume that anyone not agreeing with you is a racist is intellectual arrogance, and it's also devoid of empathy, treating the other as an object to be destroyed, not as a person with opinions, feelings, and reasons. Now, sadly, Paul says we've been seeing many such attacks recently, so I recommend that we be very open about calling them barbaric. Here's how the trick works. He says the trick works very well with opinions that are believed to be held by a majority or held by the people with real power. In such cases, the victim of the attack, like the woman wearing the ring or that second speaker above, is made to feel afraid of painful consequences and hopefully to feel humiliated. More than that, the fallacy of elimination is aimed at the observers of such arguments with the intent of intimidating them. Act like her and you'll be attacked like her. So Paul Rosenberg says, again, we see these fallacies are predominantly efforts to enforce conduct and on a broader scale than just one-on-one if possible. They inform people that they will be shamed, ridiculed, and mercilessly attacked if they don't stick with the dominant opinion, or at least what the enforcer proclaims as the dominant opinion. Now, he says you'll notice that these attacks will usually involve phrases like, we all know, or it's the law, or the council released a statement, and so on. They're intended to make you feel unsafe for leaving the authorized narrative. As such, it's a threat. We've been seeing the punishment side of this recently, he says, in cancel culture. That is of mobs proclaiming someone guilty of sin and forcing their cowardly or complicit employers to fire them. This is a modern version of heretic hunting functioning via the same dark emotions, and it shows where this fallacy can lead. 
So what to keep in mind? Well, Paul Rosenberg says when encountering this attack, you should consider the stakes. This person is serious about hurting you badly. If they were, if this person is serious about hurting you badly, how badly could they do so? The answer is probably not too much. And you'll probably decide to respond anyway, but it's something to consider. As usual, the very first thing for you to do is recognize that you're being attacked and bear the blow. Then, if you decide to respond, you have choices. Now, if the attack isn't too harsh, and if you think the other person has just been emotionally wound up and isn't really as nasty as they appear, you could say something like, wait a minute, Bob, I want to understand this. Are you saying that either I must approve of racial preferences and punishments or I'm a racist? Whatever happened to being judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character? Or you could say, Sally, are you saying that everyone wearing a ring is explicitly agreeing to be a slave? Is that the only possible reason for wearing one? Now, Paul Rosenberg says, if you're interested in protecting the people observing the conversation, you might say something like this. So you don't allow the possibility of disagreement with your law. What you're describing isn't reason, but dogma. More than that, it seems to me like you're trying to scare away any potential heretics. Or you can just say something like this as you turn and walk away. Sure, anyone who doesn't agree with you is automatically a monster, of course. But remember, you're walking away as you say it. He says, when dealing with this attack, remember, your attacker is probably passing along his or her own fears. In other words, they were frightened by the majority or by the powerful at some time in the past. Thus intimidated, they joined themselves to power, hoping for safety. Slapping heretics is how they demonstrate their continued union with power. It's how they keep themselves safe. Now, these people have no right to strike you, of course. But it's useful to understand that they're more afraid than you are. And by standing up to them, you're increasing their fear, as in power will see me as a poor advocate and I'll lose my status. Now, that doesn't make their attacks on you any less bad, but at least it does provide some perspective. Some people using these fallacies will be sociopaths, others just malicious. Most will be caught in the same fears that they're spewing. So, he says, if you decide to respond to these attacks, you'll have to take blows. Not everyone will be persuaded by your arguments, no matter how good. And others will believe you at the moment and then fall back afterward. He says you can be fairly sure that such people will talk badly about you afterward. Again, it's usually about making themselves feel safe. So, Paul Rosenberg says we must be prepared to suffer, and we do that because we care more about what is real and right than the pain that can be imposed upon us. Whoa, did you get chills? That last statement, I mean, look, that's that's kind of bleak in some ways. We must be prepared to suffer, and we do that because we care more about what is real and right than the pain that can be imposed upon us. I'm not a glutton for punishment. I mean, I, I don't like to be on the outs. I don't like to be humiliated. I don't like the pain of someone, you know, publicly questioning my motives. But I'm absolutely willing to stick my neck out and take those blows and not return them in kind because I believe that uh, there is a message here that matters. Not because it's my message, but just because I believe it's a real and right message. And I think others see it that way, too. Even if we're very much in the minority, I think it's a message that needs to be heard. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, lines are open, 801-331-8113. I heard from Ray a little bit earlier. Ray, if you're listening, please feel free to uh, give us a jingle. So there is an event going on in my home state of Utah. I'm going to share this with you just because I want you to know this is taking place. And uh, and I'm pretty sure that any mass media coverage is probably going to be spun pretty hard towards there's a dangerous series of meetings taking place throughout Utah. So here's the uh, non-sensationalized version of it. Ammon Bundy is uh, traveling through the Beehive State for the next few days. Tonight he is uh, meeting at 7 o'clock at the DeSante Center in Logan, Utah. Tomorrow night, he will be at Liberty Hall in Ogden. Seating is very limited at that event, by the way. You'll want to make sure you come early. First come, first seated. Uh, Wednesday, he'll be speaking in Tremonton. And then um, Thursday, he will be in uh, Neptuno. I don't even know where that is. Somebody want to help me out? Neptuno. Um, Let's see. Also, he'll be speaking at... uh, Someone's residence, the Thayer residence in Salem, speaking in Park City on March 5th. Monday, March 8th, he will be speaking in Ephraim and then in Richfield on Tuesday, the 9th. And by the way, there will actually be a preparedness fair taking place there with vendors. Um, March 10th, he will be in St. George and Thursday in Kanab and Friday, March 12th, he'll be in Roosevelt, Utah. That's a lot of traveling. And Ammon is out there helping people organize themselves in their communities. Now, this is terrifying to some people. And I, I don't have the link. I don't really want to give the the uh, journalist who wrote it, the reporter who wrote it for the L.A. Times, the clicks. But uh, I, the most hysterical hit piece that I have seen in years on the Bundys, and I've seen some pretty hysterical ones. This was by far the worst. Ammon Bundy is going around organizing militias to resist the government and to, to come together at, you know, the touch of an app on a phone. And he's talking about the, the People's Rights Organization, which, you know, I mean, for crying out loud, cellular providers were blocking them from sending text messages to their groups. Yeah, there's a very serious effort to stop Ammon. And, and maybe it's because I have some, uh, some background uh, with the Bundy family. I've been friends with Ammon's brother, Ryan, for many, many years. I was there at Bundy Ranch in April of 2014, um, was there for their trial in late 2017, early 2018, um, was friends with Lavoie Finnicum. Though I mean, I look, I, I'm not saying this to brag. This is not a flex on my part, but I'm, I'm just telling you, I've had close enough personal access to this situation to tell you, in my opinion, the Bundys are legit people. They are good people. And what they went through was not the result of them being, you know, domestic terrorists or whatever Harry Reid called them, but but them being very committed to the cause of liberty, um, second only to being very committed to their belief in God. And with everything they went f- went through for those two years where a majority of the, the guys in the family were, were being kept as federal prisoners, they put their faith in God. You know, that's that's what they say protected them. You know, when when the feds came against them in 2014 to take their cattle away from them over alleged unpaid fines or fees. They are not the boogeyman. They are not the, the white supremacist militia, but they are people who know what it's like to stand up to government. In the face of government wrongdoing. And when when it came out 
what the government had been doing, particularly the law enforcement part of the Bureau of Land Management, along with the FBI and others. It's very clear they had the right to stand up. No jury would convict them on it. Bad enough that the judge had to dismiss the case with prejudice. I know there are a lot of explanations. Well, how did this happen? They were just slicker than than the government attorneys. Nope. No, they weren't. The truth came out. And when it came out, there came a point where, where the judge had no choice but to say, okay, this is wrong. What was done on the part of the prosecution, on the part of those government prosecutors and agents was wrong. Sorry, I'm I'm going pretty far down the rabbit hole. But what I'm saying is Ammon has a message that is worth hearing. The organizations that he is putting together are your neighbors working with people in your community who can stand up for one another, which is not synonymous synonymous with show up with guns and hold law enforcement at bay. That's how the media is treating this message. And I guess it's because they just can't get it out of their minds that there was a time when federal law enforcement showed up with guns, with SWAT teams, with all kinds of military equipment and came there to provoke a fight with the Bundy family. In spite of multiple FBI threat analyses, which which determined the Bundys are not a threat. They're the lowest possible level of threat to law enforcement. But they treated it like, oh, man, we're going in after an ISIS cell. It was ugly. And all I'm suggesting here, I'm not telling you you have to agree with the Bundys. I'm just going to suggest they have had enough skin in the game that I think it's worth hearing what they have to say. You may still disagree and you may, you know, re- reject it or, or uh, you know, discard it based on, nope, it just doesn't make sense for me. That is your prerogative. But when people have been willing to truly suffer for their beliefs, man, I, I listen to them. Even if I, I don't, you know, necessarily believe, well, their beliefs don't line up with mine. I listen to them only because somebody who's willing to suffer for their beliefs, you know, that, that catches my attention. There was a quote I saw earlier. This is, uh, yeah, Lawrence Reed, Larry Reed from the uh, Foundation for Economic Education, posted a quote from Victor Hugo, who was born um, February 26th, 1802. This was in commemoration of his 219th birthday. Victor Hugo said, you have enemies? Why, it is the story of every man who has done a great deed or created a new idea. It is the cloud which thunders around everything that shines. Fame must have enemies, as light must have gnats. Do not bother yourself about it. Disdain. Keep your mind serene as you keep your life clear. So if you're near one of these places where Ammon's going to be speaking, I would recommend you really should hear what he has to say. What he's talking about is how people can organize themselves to solve problems at the lowest possible level in their community. That's very threatening to some people who want to be in power and show you need us. You need us. You know, we're going to make you, you know, aware that you, you can't do anything without us. But this this system that 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 he is putting together, I think, is the epitome of, of what Americans used to do. Come together as friends, community members, neighbors to help each other in times of trouble. And and I'm going to segue from there into uh, this final topic. I won't share the whole article with you, but there is a, a wonderful article from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research. The danger of the administrative state. It was the administrative state that came after the Bundy family and abused them 
and then played the victim for a very long period of time. We're talking organizations like the EPA, Centers for Disease Control, Federal Trade Commission, Department of Education, Department of Justice, Internal Revenue Services, uh, Service, all these alphabet agencies that operate without the oversight of the voters themselves or the taxpayers themselves. And this dramatic expansion of the administrative state, Ethan Yang writes, has come at a cost not only to our liberty, which is slowly being eroded by a sea of paperwork and regulations, but it also undermines our democracy. And he explains why. And, and one of the worst parts about this, he points out, is that society continues to tell itself those in the administrative state are simply humble public servants. And, you know, the truth of the matter is it's possible that many of them are. At the hard, the hard reality, says Ethan Yang, is that at the end of the day, it's a source of income and advancement for bureaucrats, just like jobs in the private sector are for everyone else. But it's coming at a huge cost and taking our freedoms as well as our treasure as it does. The key takeaway, he says, if, if the lockdowns were a sudden and brutal assault on our liberties, the rise of the administrative state would be the silent killer. Because it keeps itself away from the public spotlight, only raising alarms for the communities it directly affects and the policy wonks who enjoy ranting about taxes and federal codes all day. To the average person, the administrative state is no problem until it is. Every year it grows and grows with little incentive to care for the trouble it's caused for the rest of American society. It is the true embodiment of the Leviathan illustrated by Hobbes. Although there's, a certain, there's certainly a time and place for regulatory agencies... He writes, today they have so greatly outgrown their bounds to the point that they're becoming an unelected judge, jury, and executioner. What was a handful of executive agencies at the beginning of the republic has now become an expansive list of alphabet soup abbreviations, some with their own SWAT teams and court systems. If the, he says the administrative state not only saps our treasure and stifles our creativity, but it drains our spirit. And if left unchecked, it will surely turn this country of ambitious innovators and entrepreneurs into one of paper pushers and clerks. Anybody in business for themselves is nodding their heads going, yeah, it's already kind of doing that. Hey, thank you so much for being part of our audience today. Check out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.